Well, thanks for coming this morning. We are continuing our series through uh, some selected psalms. And this morning, our study through the psalms brings us to Psalm 63. I'll give you a minute to turn there. Um, but according to the superscription, that's the little description at the top of the psalm. It's not actually in the content of the psalm, but just sort of a description of the context. Uh, we are told that Psalm 63 is a psalm of David. So that's that uh, great person of the Old Testament, King David. And he wrote it when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, there's only two times in David's life, uh, according to the biblical account, when he was in the wilderness. One is when he was fleeing from King Saul. We studied that at length over a year ago. And the other is when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. We're going to talk about that a little more in a second. That appears to be what this is about because he describes himself in the psalm as the king, something he would never have done in those days when Saul was on the throne. Uh, so that is the context for Psalm 63, it would appear. Bible scholars are nearly unanimous in their belief that both Psalm 63 and the one that comes immediately before it, Psalm 62, were written in that period of time when David was hiding out in the wilderness from his son Absalom, who had more or less staged a coup. Uh, we don't have time this morning to do a deep dive into that story. If you're interested, maybe you're looking for something to do in your personal devotional time, you can read about that in 2 Samuel 15 through chapter 19. But here's the Cliff Notes version. King David and one of his sons, named Absalom, had become estranged. Uh, it's it's a, like most f broken family stories, it takes two to tango. David doesn't exactly come out smelling like roses. Absalom is clearly a jerk, <laughs> and that's just kind of the way humanity is, right? You can't really look and say David is purely right and Absalom is purely wrong. There's a little bit of both mixed in there, uh, but they have become estranged. They've had a falling out, and after they had their falling out, Absalom spent four years doing everything he could to win over the hearts of the people in Israel. He goes on a PR blitz, a charm offensive. He is out in the streets, just mixing it up with anybody, and he is nothing but sympathetic and understanding and compassionate. And David doesn't have time for you, but boy, if there was another person on the throne, they should really listen to you. <laughs> that kind of talk is going on. So he is elevating his profile in the minds of the people, and he's simultaneously trying to diminish and undermine the good reputation of his dad, King David. Absalom's goal in all of this was to try and eventually overthrow his father and make a play for the throne himself. There's a lot of cloak and dagger stuff going on. Powerful people fall under Absalom's sway. His rebellion is growing, and David, for his part, is going about his business blissfully unaware of the gathering storm. And when the conspiracy does finally blossom into full, open, armed rebellion, David is caught flat-footed, completely off guard. He's unprepared. He's certainly not ready to meet a threat of this size. And so rather than fighting Absalom, he vies for time. David abandons Jerusalem, cedes it to the rebellion, and he flees into the wilderness, hoping that in time he can gather enough strength 
to counter the threat that's grown against his kingdom. Soon, the crushing and dispiriting news reaches him that people he had trusted and counted as friends, allies, advisors, officials, they had defected to Absalom's side. They'd been lying to his face for months, years. And just as in the days of his youth, when he had fled into the Judean desert to escape the predations of old King Saul, David is once more running for his life, living on the lamb, and writing songs. And this background helps us appreciate the feelings being expressed in Psalm 63. Let me give it a read. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Psalm 63 is written at a time of real hardship for David. I think sometimes the Bible uh, there's so many years between now and when this actually happened that we lose the real gritty human side of these stories. Think about this time in David's life. It's a bit of an understatement really to say this is a time of real hardship. This psalm was written at a time when David is in hiding and in fear for his life. And that would be bad enough, but on top of that, think about, I mean, he's a dad. He's a dad. His family is deeply broken. The one who wants to kill him is his son. There's family dynamics here. There's real disappointment. There's deep sadness and brokenness. Others who he had counted as close friends and who had promised their loyalty to him, had proven to be two-faced liars. They were in on the plot the whole time. The people, the people he had led, the people who used to sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands, now seem to be saying, out with the old, in with the new. We're with Absalom. So professionally, in terms of his family, in terms of his life, the rug has been pulled right out from underneath the feet of a very real human being. You or I can put, your, put ourselves in his feet if we dare. So on Psalm 63, we are reading the thoughts of a man who is hemmed in, 
betrayed, abandoned, perplexed, sad, angry, and in grave personal danger. He's like Arafat sleeping in a different place every night. He can't stay anywhere for too long. People are hunting him in an organized armed effort that's very real. Now, that may be a little more dramatic than most of our circumstances that we find ourselves in, but to one degree or another, this is true for many individuals in this room, in our own day. Maybe to one degree or another, it might even describe you as I'm talking to you right now. Maybe you're facing troubles and trials, grievous problems. Everything seems to be going against you. Maybe you're in fear for your life. Maybe your family is deeply broken. Maybe people have betrayed you. Maybe it just feels like the rug of the culture we thought we had lived in and were comfortable in has been pulled out from underneath us, and the culture that says, yeah, right on, is now saying, cancel them, (laughs) or something else. I don't know. But isn't there a sense in which we can sympathize with this feeling? Relational brokenness, threats against our life, whether it be from a grave disease, a pandemic, or a dread diagnosis, or even the sense that society is turning against me and all that I stand for. We can sympathize, I think, with David. His friends are nowhere to be found, his family's broken, he's running. So we might personally sympathize with David, but this scenario is equally true for the Christian church as a whole. These are evil, difficult days for the church. In the United States, we are a people within a people, scattered throughout the land, a small remnant population among a people who are given over to error and wickedness. Psalm 63 shows us how David dealt with himself in this situation, and it helpfully points us to a more excellent and soul-satisfying way to talk to God in the midst of dark and difficult things, dark and difficult seasons. There are three things I hope for us to see this morning on how David worships in the midst of adversity. The first thing I want us to see is that adversity drives David to God. Here is David in trouble in the wilderness, and this is his reaction. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. One of the reasons why I wanted to point out at the beginning of our time this morning that this problem that he's in, uh, this relational brokenness with Absalom, which has resulted in him living on the lamb, being hunted, this coup that's taken place, it's partially of his own doing. Not completely. I'm not saying David deserves what's happening to him, but he, uh, the Bible really doesn't present the heroes of the faith in a sinless way. They're showed warts and all because the Christian story, the story that we're meant to cling to and 
and celebrate is not in the goodness of a human being like David, but like David, celebrate the perfect righteousness of God and the God of grace. (laughs) David is a guy who's very familiar with his sins and brokenness, and the Bible really doesn't hold up David as a paragon of perfect moral virtue. And partly this mess that he's in He's contributed to it in some significant ways. I think sometimes when we find ourselves in a season of adversity that we in part or in whole have brought upon ourselves, we don't go running to God because we imagine God is saying, well, you made your bed, now lie in it, you know? And I want us to see here that David, as he's looking back over everything that's played out, that has brought him to this point does not have the high ground of saying to God, I did it perfectly and this is happening to me. I think some people think, well, I can't go running to God in the midst of this mess I'm in because I made this mess. And I made this mess by sinning. And I can't go now to God because he'll just say, I told you so. (laughs) What did you think was going to happen? But David shows us a more excellent way than that. He has a better view of who God is than that. He's a God of grace. He's the God who forgives. He's the God who redeems. And yes, he goes running to God. Or, and this may seem a little elementary and basic to point out, but it is a tremendously important point, it is not uncommon at all to find people who have always thought of themselves as Christians and who were generally considered by others to be followers of God. But when something goes wrong in their lives, either to them personally or maybe to somebody that they love, their immediate reaction is to say, why has God done this to me? And they turn away from God. I've seen this scads of times. Some terrible calamity comes into a person's life, and they become annoyed by worship. They're filled with grumblings against God. They suddenly look on chipper Christians as naives and dupes. How can you sing those songs? Don't you know what happened to me? They're shaken by trouble, and as a result, they question if God even exists. Or if they don't question the existence of God, they think, he's not who I thought he was. They feel that God, if he does exist is dealing with them in an unfair way. I've heard a lot of stories of people who are deconstructing. That's the word today for people who grew up in the church and have decided maybe I'm not a Christian after all. They're deconstructing their faith and not always, but quite often their exodus from the church began with some personal calamity that shakes their belief in God or His goodness. If God is God, they seem to think, Why has this been allowed to happen to me? Like Job's wife, they seem to be saying themselves and sometimes to others, let's curse God. What's the value of following him if this sort of thing can happen? This is all, unfortunately, too common. However, and I want us to see this in David, I think a a person who truly is a believer, who has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a person 
who truly knows God will do the exact opposite. And that is what David models for us in this psalm. There was no desert in David's heart, even though there was a desert surrounding him. His running from a Jerusalem was a running to God. His leaving where the temple was, was to find God in the wilderness. The adversity that David is experiencing drives David to God and not away from him. And we need to see this. This does not mean that we will understand more fully why we have been visited with these trials, but that we have a peace in spite of them because we are with God. We rest in the superior understanding and goodness of God even as we remain confused. Even though we do not understand, we are at peace because we are with the one who understands. I can illustrate this to you. If any of you are parents, you know instantly what I'm talking about when I use this illustration. I have six kids, and at one time, they were all really little, and whenever something would frighten them, they would become very scared. They would start crying, not for their dad, but for mom. <laughs> they, don't, they don't want me. I don't know how many times this has happened, but like my kids will fall, and I'm like, I'm waiting for the cry to start. They go pitter-patter into the room where mom is, and then they start crying. They allow themselves to cry in mom's presence. Or even just something will startle them, and they'll look around for mom. They want to climb up into her arms. Now, what's happening in this moment? What's happening? They're scared. Something has shaken them. And they're upset, and they go running. They find mom. But once they are taken up into mom's arms and are held close, the scary thing may not be better understood. And the scary thing may not be gone away. However, it loses a lot of its ability to frighten them in the presence of their protector. And their continuing confusion rests in the fact that their mom doesn't seem concerned at all. <laughs> she just picked him up and is holding them, and they don't know why she's not afraid of the dog, but they don't have to be either because they're in her arms. This is very similar, I think, to what David is expressing in Psalm 63. And believers go running to God when we're shaken and we're frightened. This is why David likens himself to a small chick under the shadow of the mother hen's wings. He says, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. I'm confused. I'm scared. But I'm in the arms of the one who knows, who understands, who is not concerned by these things in the least. And this is not only how David thinks of God, this is also how God thinks of us. In Matthew 23, Jesus, he's looking out over the city of Jerusalem, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. I think I've shared this story before, um, but when I was a kid, I was at church one Sunday, and I was sitting on the stage, eating some after-church refreshments downstairs in the fellowship hall, and I heard a group of my mom's friends talking about how uh, Ronald Reagan was no longer going to be president. And one of the women said, that's so weird. He's been president for so long. 
And I thought to myself, weird, that sounds terrifying. (laughs) Ronald Reagan, in my mind as a kid, I grew up in the Cold War. I had him in a very simple, childlike way. He was standing between us and the Soviets. And the Soviets were scary. Every villain in every film had a Russian accent. I was terrified of the Soviets. And I just thought of Ronald Reagan as like, in a very simplistic, childish way, he was what stood between us and the unwashed masses. (laughs) I was just scared. So they said, yeah, it's going to be weird. He's not president anymore. And as a child, it felt like the rug had been pulled right out from under me. I mean, that's like our protector, our defender. I had like a very godlike view of the president at the time, apparently. But I went up to my dad, who was sitting there talking with a man after church, and I interrupted their conversation. I pulled, Dad, is it true Ronald Reagan isn't going to be president anymore? And my dad looked at me so annoyed. <laughs> and he said, yeah, of course. Get out of here. <laughs> and it was the best thing he could have said to me. The best. If he had grabbed me by the shoulders and said, son, it's going to be okay. I would have been like, oh, no, it really is bad. But my dad was just completely nonplussed. He didn't care. It's like, yeah, of course he's not going to be president. Somebody else is going to be. Now, you interrupted me. Get out of here. And I was totally helped. (laughs) You see, as a kid, I didn't understand. But peace for me didn't rest in me coming out to a place of intellectual apprehension of all the dynamic, all the global dynamics of this thing for me. I didn't need, I just rested in the fact that my dad understood and wasn't concerned. And David models for us something very similar. He teaches us how to worship through confusion, lean into God, lean into his superior perspective. In time, God will give us an an ability to increase in our ability to grasp and understand and comprehend. But in the meantime, you can just run to him and rest in his superior vantage point. Something else I want us to see in David, the way that David worships in the midst of adversity is very instructive to us, maybe the best part of the whole psalm. Psalm 63 is the the song of a thirsty guy, a thirsty man. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I was writing about this in the midweek email, but the extraordinary thing that David is describing here in Psalm 63, the thing he is really trying to impress you with, I don't think is the depths of his thirst. He's not trying to say, look at how strong my longings are. I don't think. All human beings thirst deeply for one thing or another. And in verse 1, we could easily swap out God for any of a thousand other things, and it would still read in a way that would be true to the experience of many of us. Try this. What are you thirsty for today? Some people might say, earnestly, I seek the approval of others. My soul thirsts for the good opinion of my peers. That's just a true thing that lots of human beings experience. David is not describing 
something unusual in, sense of the, in the sense of the strength of his longing, the strength of his thirsting. The thing that is extraordinary is what the object that his thirsting has become attached to. By employing this kind of language, David is uh, not impressed, trying to impress us with the strength of his feelings. It's altogether normal for humans to thirst in this way. But it is not natural, but rather supernatural, to feel this way about God. That's not true to the experience of most human beings. And it really raises a question in my own heart. Can I say, like David, in all honesty, can I say like David, my flesh faints for you, God, as in a dry and weary land, I want you in the same way that I want a cup of water if I am dying of thirst. (laughs) Can I say that this morning? David is a man of deep and visible passions. He tends to wear his emotions on his sleeves, and there are plenty of times in the Bible where we find David thirsting and earnestly seeking the wrong kinds of things. For example, in the Bible, we find David thirsting for another man's wife. We find him thirsting for revenge at one point. We find him thirsting for an idolatrous desire for security. We find him thirsting for all kinds of things. Again, the Bible shows us guys like David, warts and all. However, in verse 3, we are helped to see something about David's thirsting that is very important and which sets it apart from most other human longings. Something really important to know about our God. We're going to cue in here on verse 3 in just a second. In his book, The Prince, Machiavelli, he writes, It's better for a king to be feared than loved. (laughs) Right? That's what he says. You really want to govern your people well. It is good to be loved, but it's better to be feared. That's a more durable way of ruling, says Machiavelli in his book, The Prince, his classic philosophical text on governments. Is that how God rules with his people? No. In fact, the Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. Jesus took it all on the cross. No sin stays on you. Jesus said, perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. Punishment's no longer on the table if you have put your trust in Jesus for salvation. God poured out all the punishment that you deserved on Jesus in a once-for-all transaction. There is therefore now no condemnation for you. There is no punishment. Do you know what that means? You are not tethered to God by a rope of fear. God is no longer useful to you. The God of other religions is useful to those who adhere to that religion. He is somebody who you must do business with to get what you want. God has said, there is no punishment. 
for those who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation. There is no condemnation. If you're going to be a follower of me, it is because you are tethered by a rope of love. You love me. You desire me. You obey as an expression of your love for who I am. Now, I point this out because this is so important to see. I so critically important in the way David responds to adversity. Not all runnings to God in adversity are equal. Does David run to God in this moment of trouble in the same way I run to White's service when my car breaks down? <laughs> my car's not working. Fix it. I think this is the way a lot of people relate to God in a time of adversity, right? This is totally wrong. I guess I'll try God. God, fix it. Isn't this the spirit of the two people on either side of Jesus on the cross when he's being crucified? The one railed against him and said, if you are who you say you are, get me down off this cross. And the other one said, let me be with you in, you know, let me be with you in paradise. There is a way to look upon God as useful, but not precious in himself. And this is never so true as in the midst of a trial. But I want you to see what David says. This is very telling in verse 3. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. The only time... The only time I seek out Andy White is when my car is broken. <laughs> I never call him up and say, hey, let's grab dinner. I think he's a great guy, by the way. I don't know if Andy White listens to these services, but super fantastic guy. Love him. But the fact of the matter is, our relationship totally revolves around my car. When I have a car problem, he's the guy I look for. That's how a lot of people relate to God. And that's not how David is relating to God in this moment. Be because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. What is his predicament? What is his problem? He's in fear for his life. He has fled Jerusalem because Absalom is trying to stick a spear through his heart, literally. And he says, you know what? There's something that's better than life, and that's you, God. It's as if my, I decided to give up cars altogether. <laughs> and I just still hung out at White's all the time. <laughs> the first thing we noted about David's worshipful response to adversity in Psalm 63 was that it caused him to run to God. But here I want us to consider what God hoped for or desired in running to God. What is he looking for when he goes to him? Is this a utilitarian seeking out of God? I don't think so. Once again, human thirsting comes in many different forms. David's position is dangerous and precarious, but nowhere in this psalm does David plead for God to spare his life. Wouldn't you? That's noteworthy. But put yourself in his shoes. That would feature in my prayers. Instead, David sings of something better than life. 
You see, to the natural eyes of men, there is nothing better than life. What an extraordinary statement. There's nothing better than life because life contains all that we have and all that we're ever gonna have. But David says there is something better than continuing existence under the sun. How can that be? Well, he has seen something, and he identifies it in Psalm 63 as the power and glory of God. And in response to seeing this, he proclaims that the steadfast love of God is better than life. He has seen the excellence of God, and he counts that as better even than his continuing existence. Christians are people who believe that there is something better than life, and there are fates worse than dying. David gets it. David gets it. However, what this demonstrates about David, again, to go back to my first point, that adversity drives him to God. His seeking of God is not about utilitarian use of God. He does not seek God in the hopes that God will take away the threat of death. He revels in the reality of God and in his steadfast love in the presence of that threat. In the presence of that threat, he just, he just leans into God. He says, God, you're better even, this, even than life. But his celebration of God is not rooted in God's usefulness to him, but rather in God's excellence. It's as if David is saying to God, I'm not so much concerned about my safety. I'm not even ultimately concerned that I might die. I'm not just concerned about getting out of this mess. Your steadfast love is more important to me than regaining the throne or even more days under the sun. I think, again, we are all like David in this uncertain world, a world that is always tipping towards some crisis or another. The threat of some final catastrophe is always looming looming over us like the proverbial sword of Damocles hanging over our heads. And even if we are given some temporary reprieve, it will always come back. Always. So even if he had pled with God to save his life from Absalom, it's not as if David would still be alive somewhere today. He would have come to the point of death another time, and he would have at that point pled with God and been filled with fear. Instead, he rightly concludes... Whether I die from Absalom or from something else at some other time, you're better than life, God. You are the thing I cling to. So what is to us the most important thing? What about you? What is the most important thing? Is it just to go on living? To prolong life? Is death the final and biggest bad thing? For many people it is, and I say that's tragic because they have nothing but this life. Everything for them is in this world. And anything that threatens continuing existence in this world will bully their heart and paralyze their mind and govern them. Govern them. Remember that moment when we were studying Esther? This is a long time ago. <laughs> Some of you weren't in the church at this time. We were studying Esther, and then I think it's in chapter 4. 
And Esther, the king is afraid of dying. He has issued a command to wipe out an entire people. The whole chapter is stained with the threat of death. And you just feel this like pressure release when Esther says, I will go to the king and if I die, I die. (laughs) I'm not going to be governed by that anymore. It's almost like as you're reading the story, you get to that line and you just go, oh, there are fates worse than dying. You're right. Esther, go to the king, and if you die, you die. There's something better than life. Right on. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says this, speaking of Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Fellow Christian, we've been freed from slavery to the fear of death, not the reality of death. The child of God constantly realizes that this is a passing world, a transient, fleeting life, and the better part is yet to come. Hebrews 10.34 For you had compassion on those in prison. The writer of Hebrews is writing to the church. He says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better and an abiding possession. You had something better and longer lasting coming to you. This sounds so obvious and so simple, and yet sometimes I think it's the key the key to the whole thing, the key to living as a Christian in these days. The world is doing its best to forget this profound fact. Life is brief and passing away. I I think this, this thought rises in the human's mind all the time, and we turn up the radio, or we lose ourselves in a project, or we shove it way down where we don't have to dwell on that too much. But it keeps rising, it keeps confronting us. Every time we go to a funeral, or you read the paper, or whatever, we're confronted by the fact that, as James says, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is a reality. This is why Hebrews 13, 14 says, For we have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is yet to come. So children of God, like our teacher for this morning, David, come to see, we come to see that mere living, mere existence, merely continuing on, merely escaping our enemies or our troubles is not the primary thing. There is something better than these things. David has beheld the glory of God. I think the best way I can illustrate this, and I'm running out of time, I know, uh, but if, if you've come to know Sarah and I, when we were first dating, she lived in California, I lived in Vermont. That's a big problem. <laughs> That's a big continent. And I, that was before the days of uh, email, uh, Facebook, cell phones. It cost like $10,000 a second to call her or something it felt like at the time. Do you guys remember that? You remember the thing called long distance? 
Some people don't even know what I'm talking about. Well, my love for Sarah was first born into the reality where the only way to communicate with her was with borrowed money from my parents or with a handwritten letter sent by mail. And I will tell you something about longing from that experience. I might have had money in the bank. I might have had many wonderful things in my life. But I would have, I mean, there's nothing, really. I would, have tra- I would have traded just about anything for her. If I could have just had, if I could just be with her tonight. If we could just hang out. If we could just talk. If I could be in her presence. You have lots of other good things, but I was lovesick and unhappy because she wasn't there. It wasn't there. And it wasn't like I needed her for something. <laughs> It wasn't like I needed her to work on my car. She was excellent, and I wanted to be with her. This is what David is describing. He says, God, I don't want you because you can scratch my itch. I want you because you're excellent. I've seen your glory, and I just want to be with you just want you near. This is the heart of somebody in a long-distance relationship. And the great thing about God is he's not a long-distance God. He's a come-to-us kind of God. This is David's prayer. And I believe God answered it in spades. The last thing, and I'll be very brief on this point. You've been very patient. Um, I won't take more than a couple seconds here. But I want you to see this also. Because it's one thing to say, yeah, we're living in the midst of brokenness and messed up stuff and, and just, you know, being with God is great. But I also want you to see that God has promised that he is a righteous judge. He has promised. Uh, David has been wronged. He's not completely right, of course. Nobody is. But he has been grievously wronged by his friends and his son. And many other people besides. There's real wrongdoing that he's suffering at the hands of. And in the end, in the final analysis, in the final stanza of Psalm 63, he just hands all of that to God. In the spirit of God, you are a righteous judge. I'm not going to serve as judge, but I believe you will. He says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. There shall be a, they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Folks, we, um, we can rest in the midst of great unfairness. We can rest in the midst of people betraying us. We can rest in the midst of a, a culture that is... Uh, becoming increasingly unkind to the church, perhaps. We can rest all in the fact that we don't have to play God. (laughs) He's on the throne. He judges fairly. He is the God who says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Right and wrong matters. 
And ultimately, all things will be judged. This is why we rest so completely in the gospel, because God has said that, again, uh, for all those who've put their trust in Jesus, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation. God didn't sweep our sin under the rug. He dealt with it on the cross. But I, can, but I think David rests in this. He rests in the future hope of a God who judges rightly. Uh, even if I die in all of this, God, I know that ultimately I'll be vindicated by you. I think Jim Elliot, who died at the end of a spear in South America, will in the end be totally vindicated. <laughs> He'll just be totally vindicated. That was not a wasted life. I think in the end, folks, we just need to rest in the fact of what is to come. And David certainly does that here, too. Uh, knowing, speaking of that long-distance example, uh, I could endure just about anything if, in those days if I knew I was going to see Sarah the next week. <laughs> I went into work with a lighter heart. You know, I just did. I, I, everything I bore up under with a lighter heart because I knew the good thing was about to come. And Christians, that's something that we can kind of cling to and embrace all of God's promises are, have been promised. They're going to come to fruition. And in these days, we live in the light of that good thing that is coming. Amen? All right, let me pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us these good things in Psalm 63. Uh, David has certainly helped us to see in his raw, honest way how we uh, can worship in the midst of great adversity. And Father, sometimes I wonder why you allow bad things to happen to us, but God, I look now on this bad thing that happened to David, and one of the good things, one of the many good things that you brought out of this season, one of the, the sweet fruits of these bitter days, was the way that he now instructs us in the, in the midst of the season that we're in. God, I thank you that you allowed David to go through these things so that his example is now available to us. And Father, I pray that in the days ahead as we face adversity, trials, uh, difficult things of all different sorts, that we would run to you. God, that we would seek you out. We'd lean into you and find in you, Lord, a, a refuge and a help and a, a very present help in this time of trouble. And Father, I pray too that in the midst of that time, we would not just seek you out for the benefits that come from you, but for who you are. God, we not only love the gifts, we love you as the giver. God, we, we long to be with you. We want to be with you. And God, we trust you and your promises. We know that there is a coming day when you're going to wipe every tear from every eye. You promise it in your word. There will be no more death. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more crying or mourning. We look forward to the promised day. We look forward to pleasures at your right hand forevermore. And God, that promise, that coming reality, helps us so powerfully in the midst of these days. We look forward to the day when Jesus returns and takes us all home to be with you forever. And God, we thank you, Lord, for showing us that this life, these days, is, are so full of purpose. There is a great story that we're living in. Thank you for showing us our place in that story. Thank you for showing us your place in that story at the center. And Father, I pray, Lord, you would help us this week to point others towards you as well. In Jesus' name, amen.